This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, I'm Alison Watri, director of the UC San Diego Stem Cell Program. And this is the Sanford Stem Cell Clinical Center. So why do I have these little guys here with me? One of the future hopes for treating leukemia is using the cells that give rise to blood, hematopoietic stem cells. And these guys have helped us to understand a lot about how the cells do that. The Sanford Stem Cell Clinical Center is one part of the UC San Diego SERM Alpha Stem Cell Clinic. The SERM-funded Alpha Stem Cell Clinics are a network of top California medical centers like the UC San Diego Health that specialize in bringing the latest stem cell clinical trials to patients to treat many afflictions, among them blood disorders like leukemia. UC San Diego's David Trevor uses these zebrafish and other model organisms to understand exactly how these very special blood stem cells are born with the goal of duplicating that process to cure diseases. It is the goal of SERM that discoveries made by people like David will someday cure blood diseases at clinics like the Sanford Stem Cell Clinical Center. David shared why and how the zebrafish has helped us and what they have revealed that is leading us toward cures. We study the stem cells that make blood, which are these um, very rare stem cells in our bone marrow. Despite their rareness, they have really impressive proliferative power. They can generate all of the hematopoietic lineages we have for our entire life. So the thought in the field is that leukemia and probably all cancers in general occur due to mutations within these stem cells. Any one of those lineages can be transformed to give rise to leukemia. You can have T-cell leukemia, B-cell leukemia. There are granulocytic leukemias, myeloid leukemias, lymphoid leukemias. There's as many types of leukemias as there are lineages. So the gold standard treatment for leukemia is bone marrow transplantation, really the first stem cell uh, treatments in the clinic. This has been around since the late 1950s. When it works, it works great. If you have an identical twin, for example, then bone marrow transplantation can work exceptionally well. Um, But most people don't have that, right? So in that case, you can get all sorts of immune rejection. So that's why the field has been looking for a long time to try to make patient-specific hematopoietic stem cells. It was sort of a pipe dream for a long time, but in the last 10 years, it really has become reality because of Shinya Yamanaka's findings that you can take essentially a handful of factors, put those into basically any adult cell type, and transdifferentiate that cell to something that is pluripotent. And that cell that you can essentially just make from a swab from the cells in your cheek they'll become the so-called induced pluripotent cells, or IPS cells, and those cells then have the potential to make any cell type in your body. So that part is actually very straightforward. We could make IPS cells from you or me um, in a matter of weeks. That part is very um, trivial now. The challenge for the field is then to recapitulate development. So you can't transplant IPS cells by themselves because they're too naive, they're too immature. They don't know who they're supposed to be. So what you need to do is then take these cells in vitro and instruct them to become certain types of cells. There are liver stem cells, hematopoietic stem cells, neural stem cells, and those are the cells you'd want to transplant into somebody, right? Because to keep a patient alive for years, you have to have stem cells being transplanted. And so people have been trying to take these pluripotent cells and instruct them to make hematopoietic stem cells for 30 or 40 years now, and we just haven't been able to do it yet. 
I think the main reason for that is because we just don't understand how the embryo does it, right? We don't know the full recipe. And so the major goal of my group is to try to use lessons from the embryo, uh, mostly the zebrafish embryo, because it presents these really nice um, opportunities to do imaging. Another reason that developmental biologists love the zebrafish is because they develop extremely quickly. The hematopoietic stem cells, for example, in humans take months to develop. Uh, during zebrafish development, we think um, these initial specification events are happening about 12 to 14 hours after fertilization. You can actually watch these things happen sort of in vivo, in real time, using confocal imaging and time-lapse imaging. We actually had the first demonstration of how exactly hematopoietic stem cells are born because we simply just imaged these embryos. We can actually watch the process of hematopoietic stem cell formation. And we saw that these hematopoietic stem cells actually derive from the floor of the dorsal aorta. The dorsal aorta is the biggest blood vessel during development. And interestingly, there's just a population of these endothelial cells that line the dorsal aorta that then transform in this very interesting process um, to hematopoietic stem cells. And so what you can see in this movie is that you see these endothelial cells that are uh, forming the floor of the dorsal aorta. They'll change their shape. You'll see the cells become uh, a round cell. Over the next few hours, you can see that cell then lose its contact with the endothelium and actually enter circulation going in through the roof of the vein. Those hematopoietic stem cells will then go to the specialized structure in the tail where they'll start to differentiate and make adult blood cell types. This is true not only in a zebrafish, but it's true in a mouse, it's true in people. So no matter what kind of vertebrate animal you are, your hematopoietic stem cells come from the endothelial lining of your dorsal aorta. And so once we saw that, we then knew, okay, this is the event we need to study. This is the event we need to understand, because this is the first time we've actually been able to see the birth of a stem cell. And so what we've been trying to do since then is essentially roll the movie even further backwards to understand where those cells come from, right? And when do those cells know they're going to be that cell? So one of our goals in the lab is to know what factors are needed to make a stem cell, what order those factors are produced in, the relationships between those genetic hierarchies. We've made some surprising discoveries. During development, these cells make direct contact with the bottom of a structure called the somite. Uh, somites are these big chunks of tissue that are along the entire developing embryo. They later give rise to skeletal muscle, um, all of your vertebrae. The cells that are fated to go on to become the hematopoietic stem cells, they crawl and make direct contact with that sort of bottom face of the somite. If we can understand what the somite is doing, we can essentially just short-circuit the process, take the factors we know that are key and add them to the cultures at the right time to try to push those cells to, to become the right lineage, basically. In this way, we've also discovered some other surprising things. In the adult, if you get a wound, you make things like a tumor necrosis factor called TNF. In the embryo, we found just sort of uh, uh, serendipitously that you also need this pro-inflammatory factor to help generate hematopoietic stem cells. So we just have to understand what factors are needed, the order in which they're needed, then we can try to, you know, essentially distill those factors to add to these culture systems to try to push those cells to the right place. And so the 10-year goal, basically, is to um, be able to make patient-specific stem cells. 
if you have leukemia, we want to be able to irradiate you or treat you to wipe out the leukemia, also wipes out your normal blood forming system. So the idea is we would take the cell from your cheek, transduce it with these factors, in a period of a couple of weeks we can make your iPS cells. We can then take those iPS cells and generate your own hematopoietic stem cells that can then be put back into you. Make all again of those hematopoietic lineages you need and stick around for the rest of your life. So that, that's the goal. Patient-specific stem cell transplants. Bringing cures from labs like David's to a clinic like this is a challenging journey. I sat with Katrina Jameson, who heads the UC San Diego CERM Alpha Stem Cell Clinic, and share insights into what the present and the future of hematopoietic stem cell therapies are, and how the Alpha clinics are making that happen. What are the most exciting things that's coming out from um, this field? Well, I think because of major advances in stem cell research that actually evolved from labs where people worked on these model systems, be it mice or zebrafish, we started to understand how stem cells really work and then expanded that to human uh, blood-forming stem cells. And I think what's really exciting now are things that took 20 years to get to the clinic, like stem cell gene therapy for severe combined immunodeficiency. Now we say, of course you can do that. And within the Alpha Clinic network. So the Alpha Clinics were called alphas in the first letter of the Greek alphabet because they're the first. Mm -hmm. It was a grandiose suggestion that we should have one-stop shopping for patients who have degenerative diseases that could benefit from stem cell therapies. And so it has expanded where we were one of the first three sites to include not just UCLA and UC Irvine, not just UC San Diego and City of Hope, but UCSF, UC Davis. You know, we're a catchment area of 20 million people. And we're trying to bring stem cell therapies closer to home. So the most exciting thing to me is that we can do that mm -hmm. as a network, that we can share clinical trial protocols. We can share confidentiality agreements and contracting. That may not sound very exciting uh, to people that are saying, but what about the science? This makes the science possible in the clinic faster. So it means we can get up and running very quickly. And when you think about technologies that are curative, like stem cell transplants for severe combined immunodeficiency, which they are, uh, making these kind of uh, really involved therapies more accessible to patients is our whole raison d'etre. Mm -hmm. So whether it's for chronic granulomatous disease or Stephanie Cherkey's work with inborn errors of metabolism, I think we can do that for these rare diseases. But I think what that tells us is we can do that for more common diseases. And we can really start making inroads on spinal cord injury, type 1 diabetes. Those are the trials we're doing. So when we started our trials, um, we did a, a phase 1 trial first in human to target leukemia stem cells and chronic lymphocytic leukemia with an antibody we made with CIRM funding. Mm -hmm. So we called it CIRM Tuzumab. <laughs> <laughs> so we started that September 2014. We started a spinal cord injury trial with neural stem cells. September 2014 and we started a type 1 diabetes um, stem cell trial um, also September 2014. We thought everybody did that first in human, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, three <laughs> trials in one month. And so we just thought it was possible. And it's, you know, that's what's really exciting that you can get those technologies. In terms of um, hematopoietic stem cell changes, we've talked about CRISPR. So, right. you, you know, a number of our labs have worked on trying to edit DNA. And I think what's really exciting, as you know, is I'm very excited about editing or repairing RNA. Mm -hmm. So DNA, you can change or try and correct when the cell is dividing. But a lot of the changes happen in cells that aren't dividing. And they've changed their RNA 
more than their DNA. So what I mean by that is if you try and remodel your house like we're trying to do now, the DNA is like the architect's blueprints. The RNA is the engineer's interpretation of that blueprint because often when you look at the architect's blueprint, it's completely different. The engineer said, no, there has to be a retaining wall. There has to be something to um, hold up that building. And then the protein is like the builder. So you have these three levels. And what happens in a lot of blood-related diseases is you have problems at all three levels, DNA, RNA and protein and what we found in various blood cancers is you activate an enzyme that really affects the RNA called ADAR, A-D-A-R-1, so ADAR is on our radar. Uh, but more than that, people have been very, very clever to say there is an RNA editing enzyme that went awry in cancer. Let's see if we can make it behave as an RNA repair mechanism in cells that are no longer dividing, post-mitotic cells. Mm -hmm. So I think that's extremely exciting. And that's a basic um, stem cell technique is by understanding stem cells and how they clone themselves or self-renew that we started looking into things that can be repair strategies. So sometimes by investing in technology you see something completely different than anything you'd ever thought you could use in an advantageous way. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really what's happened now that we're racing into clinic. There are things that we can do that are even more clever because of this sense of a collective responsibility for getting stem cell therapies to the clinic. And, and, and you guys are putting yourselves on the spot, right? I mean, by, by doing that. <laughs> Thanks by for putting that out. <laughs> 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 but is it the hope that uh, other parts uh, in U.S., perhaps in the world, will actually reproduce that model? You know, um, I, I, that is certainly my hope and uh, certainly my um, entire drive to say I hope that this can be reproduced in other places. There's something unique to this environment mm -hmm. that's hard to transplant into other places. And it's not because they can't, uh, it's because they don't think they can. Mm -hmm. And so giving that sense of ridiculous enthusiasm that we have, and <laughs> the sort of casual thing where we can have these discussions and say, what do you think? Is this a crazy idea? And then you'll say, yes, it's a crazy idea, <laughs> but I have this reagent that you can use. So you can test it. So we'll have these discussions and they seem casual, but that's how you get really important scientific ideas to the clinic. Mm -hmm. That's what abbreviates the timeline. So if you talk to people, they say, oh, it takes 15 years to translate discoveries to the clinic. That's because um, it's like, if did you watch the Super Bowl? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So imagine if you changed the quarterback at halftime. Right. Yeah. And then imagine if you changed the stadium as well. You would really mess up the game. And that's what happens in therapeutic development all the time. Uh -huh. They change the team. They change the, the whole goal. And so people lose track of what was going on and they drop the ball. Mm -hmm. By having integrated teams where we have the Sanford Consortium for Regenerative Medicine, we make basic science discoveries here. We have sufficient funding to be able to translate those discoveries, de-risk those discoveries by doing a lot of the initial translational work ourselves, which usually is thrown to a team that doesn't know anything about it in industry, and then get it to the clinic for the phase one with you know interaction with the original team, the original investigators, then we don't drop the ball and not know what was going on in the lab. Mm -hmm. Because it's still very scientific in the clinic when we get into a phase one trial. Um, usually you can look at safety and tolerability, but not proof of concept. We still have to show that the mechanism is relevant right. for that right. disease. And so by maintaining that continuity of communication, 
we're able to make sure that we stay focused and that we don't spend a lot of time spinning our wheels when really we could have done a better design clinical trial. We're at a phase right now uh -huh. when you look at stem cell research in terms of the basic, the translational and the clinical aspects where we're going to do reverse translation, where we're going to understand from looking at people in the clinic where we didn't quite get it right and say, wait a minute, we've got to make something better for you. That's a good point. So yeah, it's yeah. going to be more bespoke. Let's uh -huh. make this more precise and let's see what we, what can we do for you that is very specific to your disease, right. where it may be a different variant of a Cardia Gutierrez syndrome or whatever it is, but something where we can combine genomics with stem cell research so we do precision regenerative medicine and we can do that in a continuous way. So when I see people in clinic, they say, oh, you know, you've dealt with my bone marrow disorder, but, you know, I've got this terrible disc disease. Can you help to re repair my degenerative mm -hmm. disc disease? Aha! Mm -hmm. so, uh -huh. So we can work on one-stop shopping. So not only the actual specific disease that people came to us for, but what else is going on in your life, you know, your, your overall um, health, so we can start to improve these other aspects because they all act on each other. Whenever I would get stressed out, I would just go down and just sit and like watch the sunset or just like watch the ocean and that would make me feel better. And it looked like people were having fun surfing, so I just went on Craigslist and I got a surfboard and I was like, okay, I'm gonna learn how to do this. I'm a fourth year computer science student at UC San Diego. I work with engineers for exploration in Ryan Kastner's lab. Um, and I'm working on the SmartFin project. Phil is a scientist at Scripps um, Institute of Oceanography, and he's the lead engineer for the SmartFin project, so he does a lot of the hardware side of things, but it helps to have students who maybe know a little bit more about machine learning, who can put together different ways of visualizing data and processing data. SmartFin is a surfboard fin with embedded sensors inside of it. We want to increase the spatial density of oceanographic measurements. So there's not enough either autonomous sensors or buoys out in the water collecting data about the ocean. And specifically, the regions that we care about collecting data in are nearshore environments. Um, so that's like the surf zone regions really close to the beach where the waves are breaking. The reason why it's hard to get autonomous sensors layer is because of the high energy wave dynamics. They'll make it either really costly to put sensors layer or the amount of maintenance that they need is really high. So the idea is that if we could utilize surfers who are already in these areas, then we can maybe give them a sensor and they could collect data for us. Right now, we just have a temperature sensor and an IMU, which is an inertial measurement unit. So that measures acceleration, um, angular velocity, compass heading. So that's more of how the surfer and the surfboard are interacting with the water. From that, we can get things like wave energy density, significant wave height, wave period and frequency, but it requires collecting a lot of data in very specific locations and then processing all of that data. So that's more of what I'm working on right now. So there's kind of two sides to this. So what scientists really care about is that the surfer's movement on the surfboard isn't actually affecting the readings. So if we're taking a temperature reading and the surfer catches a wave, because of the increased velocity that the surfer has, it'll increase the temperature reading and that'll mess with the data. So ideally, we'd only want to collect scientific data when the surfer's just floating and acting like a buoy. So it's important that we can get these really accurate labels on 
these really kind of random signals that we have. Um, and the best way that we think that we can do that is using machine learning techniques. On the flip side of that, the surfer probably doesn't really care as much about the temperature of the water, but rather if they knew maybe how many waves they caught that day or how far they paddled that day, they'd be more inclined to upload their data so that we could look at it. So it's more of this community-based approach to collecting data. And while a lot of the project is associated with learning more about the ocean in terms of learning more about climate change, learning more about how human activity is affecting the ocean, it's really cool that we can give this tool to people because that will encourage them to educate themselves about ocean health and kind of make them stand up for their own local beach breaks and ocean health in their local areas. The natural reserve system is unique. It's a resource unlike anything available in any other university system in the world. There's your little kangaroo rat, fiercest animal in the West. It is a collection of protected areas, field stations, and research centers spread across the state of California, 39 in total, more than 750,000 acres of, of protected lands. is actually measuring the temperature movement through the tree. And these are dedicated to a parallel mission of the university, which is to service university-level education, research, and public service. The natural reserve system is just, it's such a magical network of wild places that we can take our research to, we can take our students to. And I think people think of universities as being books, and laboratories and classrooms. The natural reserve system is all of that. It's our rare books. It's the rare place where we can go and, and learn about the past and anticipate the future. It's a gift from the people of California that they don't know they've even given us. We're an unknown treasure in their backyard. I feel that my job is to serve the people of California. So I'm, I'm really proud to work for the reserve system. So we need to thank the people of California for supporting, you know, this reserve system. It's been here 50 years and we want to see it go on another 50 years after that. The University of California's system of natural reserves is vast and diverse. 39 very different ecosystems from one end of the state to the other from southern deserts to northern forests, from the sea to the summits of our highest peaks. It's an ecological cross-section of California with vulnerable landscapes protected in perpetuity for the advancement of science, education, and the future of California. The nice thing about it with, with, with any of the UC reserves really is the fact you've got protected, stable land. You can pursue research without the fear of losing the land or of losing anything you put in the field. And then the fish and the bugs keep the water clear. So we have Long-term research in all the reserves covering an astounding array of topics is conducted safely and securely, allowing scientific information gleaned in one generation to be built upon and compared by the next. 
Innovative techniques and technologies are tested in the reserves and lead to important scientific breakthroughs. Ayanueva is a magnet for not, not only other UC campuses, but for researchers around the world. Northern elephant seals have been studied at the Anyanuevo Reserve since the 1970s. In recent years, newly invented tracking capacities have allowed scientists to virtually follow the seals to their feeding grounds in the far North Pacific. And the unexpected findings of their research into the mysterious lives of these aquatic athletes has been simply stunning. The animal can dive over a mile. The deepest dive is, is, is literally 1,760 meters, which is, is a little bit over a mile in depth. To them, that was like a, that's a walk in the park. Marine tracking technologies developed to follow elephant seals far and deep are now also used to monitor sea turtles, tuna, and sharks on their epic migrations, giving us unprecedented insights into the health of the oceans as our climate changes. One of the things we're learning in, as we study climate change is that things are happening much more rapidly than we ever thought could happen. Climate change in California is being studied comprehensively in a new initiative involving all 39 reserves, including Boyd Deep Canyon near Palm Springs, a pristine refuge of nature, and home to the gravely threatened desert tortoise, our state's reptile. We show that the this current desert landscape where you find them down here, in a, like 80 years, that's going to be around the Sacramento area. Science is showing the climate is warming and environments are changing much faster than tortoises can adapt. We now are ready to submit a paper on the desert tortoise, and we now know that it's going to go extinct in the next 80 years from climate change. But science is also showing the tortoise's fate, and ours, is not yet sealed if we reduce our carbon footprint soon and turn down the global thermostat. So we're right at a crossroads right now. We really can save the tortoise if we act to change. Science conducted in the natural reserve system can inform wise public policies and has helped lead to the protection of many rare and endangered plants and animals such as western snowy plovers, California condors, and scrub jays, and little foxes that can only be found on Santa Cruz Island. Beyond the research angle, it's very important to think of the educational opportunities they provide. Uh, the fact that uh, field classes come out here, you know, the learning the field techniques you can't do in a classroom. We have nine right there, and then we go... Students join faculty in all the reserves to advance their higher education and help conduct critical scientific studies. Professors and students in the arts and humanities come here too. And in some reserves, so does the general public, including citizen scientists and young people learning to love and understand the natural world and be inspired to become the next generation of California's stewards and scientists. Let's see if we can find this guy. At the Sedgwick Reserve in the Santa Inez Valley, Rattlesnakes are being studied by young graduate students. He's over there. Who share their knowledge and passion with fifth and sixth graders. See how it's getting louder over here? Come around this way. And we're going to try and peek from as far away as possible because he's a little scared because he saw us. Oh, yeah. So if you look right in there, oh, yeah. he's looking at us. 
I think when kids see that, they can picture themselves doing anything. Well, if that woman can study rattlesnakes, then I could study bugs and that would be okay. The UC Natural Reserve System has carved a distinguished legacy over the past 50 years, advancing knowledge and education, guiding public policies, and inspiring the next generation of learners and leaders. It's a genuine treasure we Californians have helped create and sustain. With our continued support, it can serve us well in the next 50 years and far beyond. What I hope for the system in the future is for us to continue to do what we're doing so well. I'm really excited about where we're headed and, and really there's, uh, there's nothing keeping us back. There's nothing holding us back except our willingness to move forward. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.